0: There we go. Okay. So when we talk about the gospel of the family, we kind of mean it's the good news, because the gospel is the good news, and it's the good news proclaimed about the family. And so everything that we've talked about to this far this week is about proclaiming the gospel about what the family is, because the family is the human space in which we encounter Christ. But it's also the gospel that we proclaim to the family, When I was in graduate school, one of the taglines that was often used in class was that the family has to be both the subject and the object of the new evangelization, which means that we have to evangelize about what the family is to the family. John Paul II in Familiar's Consortio says, Family, become what you are. Right? Become what you are. So the whole theology of the body is about proclaiming what the family is so that we can know where we're going and become what we are. And we can also understand the gospel of the family as the gospel that's proclaimed by the family. Okay? Because it has to be families living out their own faith as the domestic church that reveal God's love to the world. The reveal God's love to the world. And in a world where people will say things like, a family is a family is a family. In the church, we need families that we can point to and say, like, look at this family and the joy that they have in their life. And we should be able to point to their joy. And today in the church... We have some families like that, but we have lots of families that are not living out joy. So if we can't stand up and say, like, look at the joy that we have, it's going to be unconvincing to the culture. So Pope Francis, what does he say in Joy of the Gospel? You shouldn't look like you just came from a funeral. You shouldn't look like you just came from a funeral. How do you get to the point where you don't look like you just came from a funeral? Continued conversion in our own life. So Pope Benedict XVI, in an address to the Pontifical Council on the Family, says the new evangelization depends largely on the domestic church. In our time, as in times past, the eclipse of God, the spread of ideologies contrary to the family, and the degradation of sexual ethics are connected. And just as the eclipse of God and the crisis of the family are linked, So the new evangelization is inseparable from the Christian family. The family is indeed the way of the church because it is the human space in which we encounter Christ. So if we're practicing new evangelization, it's fundamental that our focus beyond the family. And this is Pope Benedict. John Paul II is the Pope of the family. Pope Benedict comes in and says also that the new evangelization depends largely on the domestic church. And then Pope Francis calls for a synod on the family in order to deepen our understanding and kind of step back and say, okay, 30 years ago we wrote Familiars Consortio, but we're not doing what it said, so we're going to have another synod, and let's really try to do this now. All right. There's a continuity in these three holy fathers. There's continuity in them. You know, what Pope Francis is doing is an application of everything that Pope John Paul II taught and Pope Benedict deepened. Okay, there's a Pope who said that we have to pay attention to the new poor, right? Those people who grow up in broken families, suffer from addictions, etc. 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 Well, that sounds like Pope Francis. It was John Paul II in two thousand. John Paul II in two thousand. So when we think about new evangelization and what we mean by that term, right? Traditional evangelization is the proclamation of the gospel to unchurched people who don't know Jesus; they've never heard of Jesus. So when we think about evangelization in the tradition, we call it agentes, right? To the people. Right. Another category that the Second Vatican Council identifies is pastoral care. Right? Pastoral care is the work we do to enrich and deepen the faith of those who are already in the church. So pastoral care is ordered towards those people who already know Christ. Evangelization is the work that's oriented towards those who don't know Christ. New evangelization is a term that presupposes that there are people in the church who have received pastoral care without being evangelized first. They've received pastoral care without being evangelized first. So when Ted Shree came and spoke to us at a pre-study day, he kind of put a diagram like this on the board. So in the work of evangelization, you have agentes to the people who don't know our Lord, We have pastoral care to people who already know Christ. And that means that these people are fervent. They've said yes to Jesus. They've surrendered their life. They're a profound Christian outlook. They bear witness, and they make evangelizers of the evangelized. So this begs the question, like, do our people really fit into these categories? Do we ourselves actually fit into these categories? Now, I have a dear friend who's in a Bible study, and people want to join their Bible study, but their Bible study's too big. And I said, well, it's probably time for your Bible study to split and invite more people in. Well, no, because we all like each other. <laughs> right? So this Bible study's been going for like 12 years, and it's never invited or gone out in order to like, invite other people into that experience. If it was working like it should in spiritual multiplication, then they would join this Bible study and eventually get to the point where, you know what, Like we need to invite more people into this. So three of us are going to go start three new Bible studies. And maybe we still come back to this base of our friends, but we're going to go start three new Bible studies to invite more people into this experience. Because otherwise what happens is, people who are on the fringe where they don't really know our Lord and they start to come to know our Lord and they want to join a Bible study, but the only Bible studies are people who have been in a Bible study for 20 years and they all think they're really holy and this person on the fringe is like, oh, I don't belong with those people. I don't know where to go. Like, I need a Bible study for beginners, but we don't have a lot of Bible studies for beginners because the Bible studies we have are people who have done Bible studies in college, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so they come and they say, Father, I'm joining this Bible study at Mosaic, which is an evangelical church, which is ordered towards just proclaiming the gospel, who is Jesus, etc. Okay, so new evangelization is oriented towards people who have already received the sacraments subjectively, but they don't quite fit these categories. They haven't completely surrendered their life to our Lord. They haven't completely surrendered their life to our Lord. And so when we talk about what do we do in new evangelization, well, our form really should be the same as it would be as if they didn't know Jesus at all. The themes that we talk about should be the same as if they didn't know Jesus at all. Because this is what works. And we know it works because we have witnesses to the fact that it works. And they all go to the Berean church. You know, they grew up in the faith, but they never came to know Christ. And then they went to college and somebody said, who's Jesus to you? Well, Jesus is, you know, we go to the sacraments. When did you come to know Christ? Um, when I was baptized? Uh, I asked all these questions the seniors in high school. When did you come to know Jesus? Who's Jesus? And they were like, None of them told me a story of how Jesus entered into their life and they surrendered their life to our Lord and they know him and he's their best friend. Like, none of them told any stories like that. They all kind of gave the 92 question answers. Okay, 92 questions aren't bad. 92 questions are good. But, like, one of the 92 questions should be, who's Jesus? Answer in your own words. Go. And, uh, and so because they can't answer the question, then they end up in this dialogue with this person, and the person evangelizes them, and then they grow in fervor. You know, Sherry Waddell, when she writes Informing the Intentional Disciples, she talks about how sometimes we, we just sit back and go, oh, they just want to be entertained, they're just going for entertainment. Well, they're not really going for entertainment, they're going because they found Jesus there. Are they de- they're developing a personal relationship with Jesus? Now, oftentimes, people will go to an evangelical church for about three years, and then they realize, okay, now I'm ready to go deeper, and there's no place to go, and they come back. But my ideal would be that the evangelical churches realize they've got about a three-year lifespan on people, and they just, like, have them go there for three years, and then they send them to the Catholic church. <laughs> and they come to the Catholic church. But they keep doing what they're doing because what they're doing is good for people who need to know our Lord. So because we don't have that element. okay? I'm going to use a story like a friend of mine, who, my Baptist friend who misses his grandma when I was in chaplain school. He started coming to mass with me every day. And he started praying the bravery with me every day. Because these guys don't think Catholics pray but every single break, all of me and the other seminarians at chaplain school were out there with our Liturgy of the Hours. We're praying the breviary together. And now the Protestants are like, what is that book? What are you doing? And they realize that we pray every day. And it's all based on scripture. And so my Baptist friend, my Methodist friend, my Presbyterian friend all went out and bought Liturgy of the Hours. And we started praying Liturgy of the Hours together. I don't know who they pray for when it says pray for the Pope. But they all <laughs> bought Liturgy of the Hours. And we started praying it together. And then my friend starts coming to daily Mass with me. And it was the bread of life discourse all week and we were going all week and all the, so all the sermons are on like the Eucharist is Jesus. And he says to me, okay, so if you really believe that the Eucharist is Jesus, why has nobody ever told me this before? And I said, you're right. We should be telling you that. And then he said, you know what I figured out was that the only thing that my church cares about is getting people to accept Christ. And the only thing you guys seem to care about is helping Catholics who are already Catholic go deeper. And he's right. In our practice, that's what we've done is we focus on helping people who are already Catholic go deeper. They just focus on like, finding that person who doesn't know Jesus and introducing them to Jesus, and then like, once they surrender their life, they're done. Right? And sometimes they surrender their life, and then they go fade away because there's nothing more to go to. But the vision of the church is that we do all of this. right? It's not that we just help people go deeper. It's that we do the whole thing. That we do the whole thing. That's why Father John Ricardo is doing nothing but Alpha Bible studies. He canceled everything in his parish, everything. All right? Like no Knights Columbus, no altar society, no endow, no that man is you, no nothing but Alpha Bible study. Alpha Bible study is a ten-week Bible study. All it is is like the big questions: Who is Jesus? Why did he die on the cross for me? What is prayer? What's the role of the Holy Spirit? how do I surrender my life? It's 10 weeks, people come, they have dinner, watch a video, have a small group discussion for 10 weeks. And that's he's making everybody in his parish go through it. He's running it three times a day, five days a week. And because he realizes that everything that he's been doing for the last 15 or 20 years there are people who have been in charge of faith formation in parishes around Detroit who have been, writ- they wrote the whole faith formation program and they had to step back and say, we haven't been making disciples. And so they just like trashed the whole thing starting over from the beginning, right? Starting over from God's mercy. And, uh, and I guess we'll like sit back and watch and see what happens. <laughs> but I think there's something to that idea, yeah, there's something to that idea because the people that I have in spiritual direction usually we end up starting back from the beginning who is jesus da, 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 da. i'm going to take questions at the end so who is jesus da, 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 da. all right so like there's been something missing and george weigel would attribute all of this to the to the reformation like he's would say after the reformation the church became very concerned about defending doctrine against heresy and so All of the preaching of the church became about catechesis and doctrine and apologetics and defending the faith against heresy. And so that became our cultural ethos is to defend the faith against heresy. And so we start with doctrine, apologetics, catechesis. And we presume that people who are culturally Catholic are encountering our Lord in the family and coming to know our Lord in the family. But if we step back and kind of look at our culture, I think intuitively we all know that that's not happening all the time. So how do we reestablish that? Now, Pope Francis uses this field hospital image for the church. The thing the church needs most today is the ability to heal wounds and to warm the hearts of the faithful. It needs nearness and proximity. I see the church as a field hospital after battle. It's useless to ask a seriously injured person if he has high cholesterol or about the level of his blood sugars. You have to heal his wounds. Then we can talk about everything else. Okay, you have to heal his wounds. And what we find, like, that's the way the gospel was preached. It's the way Mark's gospel is written. John the Baptist shows up. He starts preaching in a way that brings people's wounds out because he preaches on love. That's the only thing we know he preached about was, it's not lawful for you to be married to your brother's wife. And then all these people come and they confess their sin in the external forum. It's not sacramental confession. They just go and they say, I am a sinner and I want to repent. I want to change my life. And then Jesus shows up in the gospel. And what does Jesus start doing? He starts healing everybody's wounds. And as he heals their wounds, they become his disciple. And that's kind of a model for evangelization. We preach the truth about love. It brings people's wounds to the surface. Jesus comes to heal their wounds and they become his disciple. Because any time we tell the truth about love, it's going to bring people's wounds to the surface. It's going to bring people's wounds to the surface. You know, that's what happened to me when I was in graduate school. And that's what people say happens to them when I preach the gospel to them. And then as they find healing, they become fervent disciples. So if the church is a field hospital, that means that we have to, like, triage and prioritize. And, um, and so this idea of triage in a field hospital is like, okay, you're ambulatory, you need a lot of morphine, you can help us help other people. And so we have these people in the church. We have three categories of people in the church, and in the document on the family, John Paul II names them. He says, Knowing that marriage and family constitute one of the most precious of human values, the church wishes to speak and offer her help to those who are already aware of the value of marriage and family and seek to live it out faithfully. That's one category of people. To those who are uncertain and anxious and searching for the truth, it's another category of people. And to those who are unjustly impeded from living freely, their family lives. It's the third category people. And so, what do we do? He says, supporting the first, illuminating the second, and assisting others. The church offers her service to every person who wonders about the destiny of marriage and the family. Supporting, assisting, uh, supporting, illuminating, assisting, and those three methods of transmitting the faith correspond to three kind of lenses through which we proclaim the gospel and do pastoral care. Okay, The first one is kerygma, or the first proclamation of Christ's saving love. Then catechesis, which is the explanation of what we believe. And then doctrinal and moral principles. So simply put, Jesus loves you. Marriage is a sacrament between a man and a woman who are baptized. Contraception is a mortal sin. Okay, Doctrine and morals. And so if we kind of use those three categories, we have this already faithful people, confused and bewildered people, people hindered by injustice, People who are hindered by injustice are also people who have divorced in their families. They lived in an addiction family system. They have suffered betrayal. They've been abandoned. They were exposed to pornography when they were 10 years old. These are all people who are hindered by injustice from living out their vocation to love. Okay, Anytime that somebody experiences some kind of trauma or betrayal in their life, they might have been at already faithful, but they end up down here and hindered by injustices because those are things that shake our faith. And so what do they need? The first needs support, illumination and clarity, and assistance. And the response to the need, for those who are already faithful, they're ready to, like, to go deeper into doctrine, morality, deepening of dogma, and moral teaching in the church. And that's what our adult education programs do. Like, End Out is a great program. But my person who just went through a divorce, and they don't really know the faith, and they didn't grow up knowing the faith, I don't know that they need to go really deep into Edith Stein right away. Then there are these confused or bewildered people. These are people who are unclear about the church's teaching on homosexuality. Um, These are people, maybe they haven't totally bought into the church's teaching about contraception. They might be people who just have a lot of questions about whether confession is really necessary. But they go to mass and they're part of the church and they need catechesis, right? Evangelization, continued catechesis, adult education that's focused on catechesis. So things like Symbolon as an RCIA program that helps to clarify what the church teaches. And then the third category of people really need the kerygma, the first proclamation of Christ-saving love. Communities of support in various circumstances of suffering. These things exist both in the church and out of the church. Right? These can be for people both in the church and out of the church. So one of the most helpful elements of the Catholic Divorce Survival Guide program that I started this year, what everybody walks away with is I never really understood Jesus' love for me personally because I've taken that program and then what I add is just I do kerygma, 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 kerygma. First proclamation of Christ-saving love over and over and over again. And that's what starts to bring about this conversion. Right, People who are involved in unbound deliverance ministry, what is it? It's a really formal way of introducing this person to the kerygma over again. Now, Pope Francis says that everything the church does has to incorporate these three principles, and they have to be done in order. So when he speaks about preaching, he says... A beautiful homily or a genuine sermon must begin with the first proclamation, with the proclamation of salvation. There's nothing more solid, deep and sure than this proclamation. Then you have to do catechesis. Then you can even draw a moral consequence, but the proclamation of the saving love of God comes before moral and religious imperatives. Today it seems that the opposite order is prevailing. Okay, the homily is the touchstone to measure the pastor's proximity of his ability to meet his people, because those who preach must recognize the heart of their community and must be able to see where the desire of God is lively and ardent. Okay, so today it seems the opposite order is prevailing, which means that a lot of times the content of preaching, and I would also say the content of our classroom teaching starts with doctrine and morals. And then we use catechesis to explain the doctrine and morals. And if we get to it, by the way, Jesus loves you and you're supposed to have a personal relationship. And I used to do this when I taught high school. And I would get myself in trouble. Because there's always a kid who has a close family member who's living in contradiction to the church. And oftentimes that close family member is actually happier than the kid's family who's like, you know, living out the faith every day and kind of the way of constraint and fear. And so, Father, what about gay marriage? Well, homosexual acts are always sinful and they're a mortal sin, which means you go to hell. That's the doctrinal moral principle. Like, that's the conclusion. If I start there... Then their next thing they're going to say is, well, my uncle, is the, my, he's the nicest person in my whole family. And him and his partner have a better relationship than my parents. And so what do you think about that, father? <laughs> and then you're stuck because you, you have to tell him his uncle's going to hell. And then you try to backpedal and do like catechesis where but created the image of God, man and woman, and we get lost in that. If we start with every single person is created for communion with God. Every person is a beloved son, a beloved daughter of the Father. And Jesus loves everyone even in their sin because that's the message of mercy. That's the message of divine mercy. And so what does God think about that? Like God looks at him with love and awaits their response to his look of love. Okay, he awaits their response to his look of love. Okay, we all must respond to the look of love in order to have eternal life. Each and every one of us has to respond to the look of love to gain eternal life. Okay, oftentimes people don't respond to it. And most people I've ever found that were really caught up in sin, part of them doesn't believe that it would be possible that God could possibly love them if God is the God they believe that exists. Now, Many atheists that I've had a conversation with, it's not that they don't believe in God. They don't believe that it's possible that there is a God who could care about them. They might buy into a creator of the universe because we can use astrophysics and all of this stuff to explain it. But they still don't believe it's possible that the God who exists could care about them. And so the first proclamation is that that God who exists cares about you. And then we can move forward from there. Then we can move forward from there. Some of the young men that I have worked with who experience same-sex attraction we just sort of start with your identity as a son, and then what happens is all of that comes out, like all of the distortion that they've inherited throughout their life about being a son, and we're just going to work on that. We're not going to talk about like what you're doing out here or what you've done out here. We're just going to talk about, like, let's heal this like fundamental thing first. And I think that should be the practice for the entire church, no matter whether the person is experiencing same-sex attraction, acting on it, or their heterosexual person who's also wanting to get married Everyone should work on their own junk first. Because if we work on that, it's going to make healthier marriages. And they might find healing that will help to explain what's going on in their life. And it might actually change their experience of themselves. Dr. Benish told me, she told me lots of stories about, you know, people who, experience same-sex attraction or something else, and she's not doing reparative therapy or anything. All she's doing is treating them for attachment disorders. And as she treated their attachment disorder, then, like, something flipped about the way they saw themselves. Because they had an explanation for, something feels different about me. And that kind of healing process should take place for every single person who gets married. Because all of us have junk, some of us have little junk, some of us have big junk. Some of us have a lot of little junk that becomes a big pile of junk. <laughs> and, and so as we like, kind of work through that, and when I say work through that, I don't just mean in a psychological way. I mean like, psychology has the role of bringing to the surface like, and helping us to understand our wounds so that we know what we're inviting our Lord into. And we can be more specific about inviting our Lord into it. Now, all the work that I had done, and I had to work through all kinds of things in my relationships and my family. Some things that I haven't told you, and then there's the things I have told you. But then, like most recently, the thing that's given me the most joy was figuring out that I had suffered a big loss when I was 22, and it wasn't the divorce of my parents, and it wasn't some other things. It was that I broke up with my girlfriend to go to the seminary. And I was really in love. And that sounds stupid because I have all this other stuff that seems a lot bigger. But that was this thing that was a huge obstacle to me entrusting trusting my life to our Lord because I had experienced a lot of pain over it. And I never really like, let myself love like that again. And then my spiritual director, he like really kind of changed that and helped me to see God was teaching me something about love in that time in my life. And that same experience can happen with our Lord. So when Pope Francis said all of that to priests about preaching, he says the same thing to catechists. He says, In catechesis, too, we have rediscovered the fundamental role of the first announcement, or kerygma, which needs to be the center of all evangelizing activity and all efforts at church renewal. The kerygma is Trinitarian. The fire of the Spirit is given in the form of tongues and leads us to believe in Jesus Christ, who by his death and resurrection reveals and communicates to us the Father's infinite mercy, On the lips of the catechist, the first proclamation must ring out over and over, Jesus Christ loves you, he gave his life to save you, and now he is living at your side every day to enlighten, strengthen, and free you. The first proclamation is called first not because it exists at the beginning and then can be forgotten or replaced by other more important things. It's first in a qualitative sense because it is the principal proclamation. The one we must hear again and again in different ways the one which we must announce one way or another throughout the process of catechesis at every level and moment. Okay, So, in Joy of the Gospel, Pope Francis places this emphasis on proclaiming the Kerygma, which means that in our classrooms, we should be proclaiming the Kerygma over and over again in different ways. Everything we teach, we try to bring that back into an encounter with our Lord and that fundamental proclamation that you are beloved. And we need to hear it over and over and over again. And we might say, well, that can get boring. We've already covered that. They already know that. They know God loves them. And I used to hate this. This is not flowery language. When I was in the seminary, I remember... I went to a parish. And the pastor, I asked him, what do you want the kids to know for First Communion? And, because I'm thinking in my head, you know, it's okay, we have to teach them what the Eucharist is. And he was like, I want them to know that Jesus Christ loves them very much. And I was like, Bleh. Now, there is a time in the church in which we all grew up in, especially if we're not from Lincoln, where the only thing they did in catechesis was, Jesus Christ loves you very much. And they didn't do the rest. And then we discovered the truth. And we were like, nobody told me the truth. And we got angry at Father Jesus loves you so much for not telling us the truth about the faith. And so then we said, we're going to teach the truth about the faith. And so we start doing that without telling people Jesus actually loves them. And we just swing the pendulum from one side to the other in a disconnected way. And both sides have a distortion. So I reacted against him when he said that. And he was probably reacting against Father Rigidness, who only taught the doctrine and didn't tell anybody Jesus loved them. And the pendulum swings back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And so my own emphasis, and I started to, when I've given talks when I was director of religious education two years ago, and I've gone to schools and done formation for teachers, like a little retreat days, and I always emphasize this. um, And there's this emphasis on the love of our Lord. And sometimes I'll have this conversation with other people and they'll just say, well, yeah, they know Jesus loves them. They know that they're a beloved son. I'm like, no, people don't know they're a beloved son. They don't, know, they don't know what that means. And so we have to be as loud as the culture. They have all these other voices in their head telling them, you are an individual. You make your own choices. Love doesn't really exist. If you want to be happy, you need to be in this sinful lifestyle And they hear that over and over and over and over and over again, and they don't get bored with that message. It actually starts to form their whole way of thinking. So we have to be as loud as the culture in proclaiming the gospel and never get bored of proclaiming the gospel and just be able to insert in little ways along the way the kerygma. And it doesn't take 20 minutes to proclaim the kerygma. It just takes a couple of minutes to proclaim the kerygma. Like, when I tell you, I realized when I had these wounds that Jesus like, entered in my life and gave me joy, that's proclaiming the Krigma in another way. And so the Krigma is also rooted in that anthropological order that we've been following of your beloved son and daughter so that you can become a spouse, so that you can become a parent. Right? So, taking this lens is a way of informing everything that we do about the faith with the Krigma taking the lens of relationship or having a language about relationship is a way of infusing the kerygma into everything that we do. Because if we use that relational way of talking about going to confession, it's a place where you go to make yourself vulnerable to our Lord so that you can receive His love. We've just proclaimed the kerygma in a way that goes beyond you have to confess your mortal sins by number and kind. You go in, you do this form, the priest prays the prayers of absolution, and you get absolved. Okay? In the history of theology, there's also like, this principle. There's this principle about the sacraments that says, The sacraments work ex opere operato. Okay? Which means the sacraments work from the work worked. And the reason we need that formulation is because people start to question, my priest is a sinner, and he's a notorious sinner, and I know that. So when he says Mass, is the Eucharist happening? Is the, Euchar- is the sacrament dependent on the holiness of the priest? And the answer is no, the sacraments work from the work worked. So God's light can shine even through a dirty window. And so that principle is important. Okay, but that principle does not mean that the way that we teach about the sacraments should simply be a mechanical thing that says if you do the form, the sacrament happens and that's it. Because then we give the impression that the faith is about saying these formulas so that we can elicit an effect from God and we lose out on this idea of personal relationship. You know, but I think it's because of that emphasis on the sacraments work from the work worked that we lost sight of this idea of the sacraments are the means by which we establish relationship with our Lord and our identity is transformed or changed. Okay, so that's what Pope Francis teaches about kerygma. It's just to sort of infuse that. And maybe I should have done that, you know, when we started, but I didn't. Okay, so I'm going to go to some questions Does anybody have any questions that you want to raise your hand and ask? Okay. Go ahead. Hey, um, I love Alpha. I love Alpha too. It's really working well at the church that I'm in. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'm a convert, and Alpha is comes from I know. And there's a whole lot of criticism. I know. From the sh- of the, some of the shortcomings um, because it's Protestant. Of I know. Alpha. And I can't tell you the number. I've been kicked in the teeth because I'm the director of faith formation and we're doing this at my church and I must have no scruples at all about about engaging in this. Mm -hmm. How do I get over that? I mean, how do I get people over that? Or am I just going to have to put up with people? You're just going to have to put up with people. The thing is that, look, Alpha is a Protestant program, but it's just a program that proclaims the Kerygma. Okay, so there might be a couple of things about it that... The ecclesiology is not quite right. Okay, but you can fix that, right? It's our job as a church to fix that. Okay, if you use the Faith and Life series, it doesn't mean the Faith and Life series is absolutely right about everything. You can fix that, right? You can fix the shortcomings in the curriculum. Our Catholic books aren't all perfect. and They're not all going to be perfect when we teach them. But we address that as a catechist. That's why we do what we do. We do what we do to teach. The curriculum we use is a tool. The curriculum we use is a tool. Now, what I would recommend if you do Alpha is that you do Alpha as part of a whole intentional discipleship program. It's one component of an intentional discipleship program. So, when you do it, you follow the formula of charygma, catechesis, doctrine, morals, like I talked about before, okay? So alpha, like right now, you have everything here, okay? The Augustine Institute puts out all kinds of programs. They fit here. Symbolon fits here. Okay, the RCIA calls for something to fit here, but we don't have anything that fits here. And so alpha fits here. But you do Alpha with the intention of forming small faith communities that then are going to do Symbolon next. Symbolon next corrects any doctrinal or catechetical issues with Alpha. Alpha engages somebody in a relationship with Jesus. This clarifies it through catechesis. And then when they finish that, this is 10 weeks, this is 20 weeks, you've done 30 weeks of curriculum there, you've taken somebody through a whole year of an intentional discipleship program, and then you have a small faith community that's ready to go deeper. And in that small faith community that's ready to go deeper, you just feed them curriculum and they do it on their own. And that's where you do things like Beloved, Father Gately's thing on Divine Mercy, Um, like what I would like to see happen is sort of a four-week rotation where you have something that's catechetical like you might do Bible Timeline then week two you do prayer and you might do the Oremus prayer thing where you learn how to do Lexio Divina then in the third week you do Virtue there's a program called Families of Character which I think is good but it's just about like building natural virtues in the family and it's like monthly virtues for four years but So it's too much to just run that on its own. But if you insert it in some kind of a rotation, then it's stomachable. And then the fourth week, you might just have dinner within those small faith communities, right, if they meet every week. And so this is, like, going deeper because you've already laid the foundation here and here, right? We have the first two steps. I'm doing Alpha. The Father's doing Symbolon. Yep. So you intentionally feed them from Alpha to Symbolon, and it corrects all that criticism, and you're done. If they criticize you, just say, what do you do that proclaims the krigman to people? And they're going to say, nothing. Okay, there's another program that is Catholic called Christ Life. It's like 27 weeks or something. They're doing it in Kansas City. They're all bought in. Some people don't like Christ Life because it's not as good or it's just Alpha with a Catholic skin, and so the Catholic stuff doesn't really penetrate the heart anyways. Um, but that exists. And then what I would do, like is collaborate with your school system and your family formation people so that you have this schema down here, which is the accompaniment of the family. And you have engagement, and they go to marriage prep, and then they get married. And when they get married, you try to get them to go to Alpha. And then you have like marriage mentoring, or we have date night here, which is just like a theology on tap for couples. And then they're going to come back at baptism. You do baptism prep and you try to get them to go to Alpha. And then the next time these people are going to show up as First Communion. At First Communion, you start doing some education for love and giving them tools for education for love. And you try to get those parents to go to Alpha. See the theme here? And then you have confirmation. You have the next stage of education for love. And you try to get them to go to Alpha. Because you try to use these as access points to get people to go back into this intentional discipleship program that's a way that we can try to convert our parents. We have parishes in town that have made it mandatory if you go to our school, you have to go to some kind of discipleship program. Otherwise, you can't come to our school. And that might be a retreat at the retreat house, or it might be that they go to RCIA. You know, I think ideally, like, you go through Alpha. You just say, kindergarten roundup, you're going to be together for 12 years, you might as well make friends, come have dinner for 10 weeks. <laughs> We're going to feed you dinner for 10 weeks. And you get to know each other, become friends. And at the mean, then we're going to evangelize you. And then we're going to try to get you to go to the next stage, next stage, next stage. Because the biggest indicator that your kids will remain faithful is that you know Jesus. And you have to be able to tell your kids your at-last moment with Jesus. Your conversion story. Sister. called Catholic Divorce Survival Guide, and we started about a year ago, so it runs for 12 weeks, then we take a month off, and then it goes for 12 weeks, we take a month off, it goes for 12 weeks, and I'm just now, so it's the third round, so I have some lay people that went through the first one, accompanied me with the second one, and they're running the third one, and then they're going to be able to run on their own, and I'll pop in and do little krigma suffering, stuff like that. Yes, Teresa. Um, as I was saying, with Patti's student Shepherd, we're always building that relationship with the spiral method. So even from a child from three to 12 years old, is going to be working on that relationship. Right. right exactly and that's why i think catechesis of the good shepherd is good and like i would be an advocate of like running catechesis of the good shepherd as an something to augment the religion curriculum and just running it all the way through like i would have no problem with running it all the way through if people are motivated to run it all the way through and they have the space and you're going to stay on the curriculum like the catechetical curriculum that we have cuz the curriculum is here Okay, but we always have to be mindful of here. And catechesis of the Good Shepherd is a good way to bring this into the curriculum. And augmenting would not, you know, exactly. That's what it's augment, not replace. All the um, you yeah, know, not like- I know. I'm on your side, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not the director of religious education, so um, yeah, you need to talk to him. Okay. All right. So, Chris. To a child, oh, like your own child who's married outside the church and no longer receiving the sacraments. You just proclaim the Kerygma's Like, you love them anyways. And you tell them, Jesus loves you anyways. And you invite them to things at church. The problem is, like, in our parishes, and you can try to motivate this, be a voice, there's just not a lot of places to invite people besides Mass. You know, that's why I think things like Alpha are good or like a Bible study for beginners is good where the intention of it is not to try to drive people to the sacraments next month. It's to accompany them for about a year to motivate them to come back. And and also by witnessing to your own experience of the love of Christ in your own life, You know, that's the story that they need to hear. Because a lot of times parents will say to me, they'll say, Father, my child's away from the church, and I'm sending them Matthew Kelly books, and I'm sending them Scott Hahn CDs, and I'm sending them all this stuff, and then I just, but they're not responding, what should I do? And I'm like, they don't care why Scott Hahn's Catholic. They care why you're Catholic. You need to tell them your story, your conversion story. Share your life with them. That's what they care about. They don't care why Scott Hans Catholic. And in, because they need to be in a relationship with you, and you're mediating the relationship through a third party when you send them this material. The material is good, but send them the material and say, this changed my life because when I read this, I realized Jesus loved me. But you have to connect it back to your own conversion and share your own conversion with them. Best conversion story i ever heard is the worst conversion story I've ever heard. Lighthouse Catholic Media is not going to publish it. Right? My dad, I was going to mass to serve, was in the car with my dad, and I said, why are you Catholic? And he said, I tried to live outside the church for a really long time, and it just didn't work. End of story. Lighthouse Catholic Media is not putting it on a CD. But that is the reason that I kept going to Mass in college. And I could tell you on a few occasions of going out on Friday night when I was in the Army, or going out and then going out on Saturday night when I was in the Army, and waking up on Sunday not feeling like going to Mass, Dad's voice in my head, I tried to live outside the church for a really long time, but it just didn't work. And I got up and I went. Because I knew that if it didn't work for my dad, it wouldn't work for me, and so I went. And it had an impact on me. And it wasn't a great story, but it was his story, which meant it was part of my story. And so parents need to not be afraid of telling their own conversion stories. And we as teachers need to not be afraid of telling our own conversion stories. When people fall in love, they tell everybody about it. Your teenager can't stop talking about the person they fell in love with last week. And so why would we hesitate to talk about the person that we've fallen in love with being Jesus? And we have a right to express our joy and we shouldn't be afraid of expressing our joy because it's just who we are. Okay, other questions? Okay, so um, Sister asked me about what I talked about suffering yesterday, and so the question was about like when I'd used those categories when I talked about it, and I just used this as it 's just a schema right it 's a schema to understand what we mean when we talk about suffering. And so we talked about it as like this kind of life I wish I had and this life I have, like the concrete life. And so the distance between them is the measure of our suffering. And so we talked about like the woman who has cancer and like her suffering is like this idea that I won't see my daughter graduate, I won't see this, I won't see this. Like, somebody who gets divorced, their suffering is like we're not gonna have family Christmas with all of us together next year or the year after, or the year after, or the year after. A person who has an abortion, like their suffering extends through their whole life because oftentimes it's like my child would be five, my child would be ten, my child would be fifteen. And until they've surrendered that to our Lord, it's constantly going to be this point of agitation in their life, right? So this idea was to make the distinction between like what we offer to God or surrender, which has to be all of this stuff here, so that we can accept this part right here. As we do accept that, what happens, Christ can enter into our life and transform us and make our life more fruitful. And make our life more fruitful so that it's Christ that lives in us. That idea of I'm going to give up on what I wish my life was and accept my suffering so that Christ can transform me and then his life in me becomes more fruitful, my suffering becomes redemptive. And so God uses that moment to glorify What's going on in my life? Now this isn't any different than how Christ wants to act in all of your life, no matter what has happened to you. Christ always wants to act in our life like that. Because if we're living out our identity as sons and daughters of God, we're not going to be able to contain our joy, and it's always going to spill over into the lives of others. When somebody experiences a particular kind of suffering in their life, they become more vulnerable to the activation of that dynamic in their life. Right? So like a child who, and sister used the example of Nathan Ron, who was this child who had a brain tumor. Right? And I have a particular devotion to him because he really did like intercede for my brother in a particular way. Google me if you want the whole story. It's on an article in Lincoln Journal Star. But when he was a child, he got a brain tumor, and so he lived out that dynamic, and what happened was God used him to reach all kinds of people, and God entered into his life and used him to reach all kinds of people. Now, I always want to shy away from saying God gave him a brain tumor so that he could reach all these people, but it's just his life is a life that had a brain tumor, and again, what, what I wrote in my paper has to do with the idea that it's our category that eight years old is too short for a human life. And that's what we're putting on God by saying eight years old is too short to be a human life. You know, Our lives are our lives. The goal of our life is to completely surrender ourselves to our Lord. If we've done that, then we're good to go. Because it's about eternal life. And so when we see that, we want to come up with an excuse for why his life was only eight years. And so we say things like God gave him a brain tumor so that he could do all these things. But God could have worked through his life even without a brain tumor in order to bring that to everyone. It was just more profoundly recognized. But he did go through that because his mom tells the story of how he made this transition in his life where all he started focusing on was heaven and all he started talking about was heaven. Right? He wasn't talking about what he couldn't do anymore. He was talking about what he's going to do in heaven. Like, is there baseball in heaven? Can I play baseball? I'm going to do all this stuff. I'm going to be so busy. I'm going to be helping all these people. He started to focus on what he was going to do in heaven, even in this life, which manifests the reality that he had completely like offered all of that and that our Lord was transforming what was here. And actually elevating it to some state that was even better than what it would have been. So he's a witness to that dynamic. And God does work in his life. When my dad was dying of cancer, like, he grew in holiness like exponentially as he approached his death. He just grew in holiness exponentially as he approached his death. He started to learn what it meant to surrender his life even days before he died, and he was having these, like, he would see this person that would come to him. It was like this 22-year-old Italian on a motorcycle. I don't that's how he described it. And then it was like a young seminarian. And then his funeral was on the feast of St. Aloysius Gonzaga, which was very interesting. But he said, this person keeps coming to me, and they're teaching me about things. Like, this person said to me, just let go, man. It's easy. And he said, and then I kind of did it. And then it was just like, God's life came into me. And I didn't feel pain. You know, for just a moment. And the last thing he said to me was, I never really knew how to love, but God's teaching me and I'm learning fast. Fast. You know that's what happens in the midst of our suffering. Our suffering becomes a crisis. This is the way Emmanuel Mounier talks about it. He says our suffering becomes a crisis from which we move in one of two directions. We either move towards personalization, which is like a greater acceptance of our transcendence, our identity as sons of the Father, greater personal experience, greater love, more energy, or we move towards depersonalization, which is that kind of entropy. We get stuck. We can't move forward. We just get depressed and turn in on ourselves. Those are his categories, or personalization or depersonalization. He's a philosopher, so he's not writing directly from a Christian context. He is a faithful Catholic, and so he describes his own life in which he had had this depression in his life. He went off to study chemistry and to be a pharmacist, because his dad was a pharmacist. And then he was studying this stuff and he got into this huge depression because he had this love for philosophy. And so it wasn't until he went for about a year and he spent a year kind of in retreat where he had this conversion and started to move towards higher personal life. And in his letters, he also had a child with encephalitis and he has these letters that he writes that talk about the value of that child's life, even though the child had encephalitis And he was constantly, like, looking into this blank stare. And he meditates on this. And he says, like, that blank stare that reveals more than another kind of look. Right? That my daughter is, like, a host. And he compares his daughter to the Eucharist because God lives in her life. He encounters God in her life, even though she just seems to be a vessel. And his reflections are like amazingly beautiful as he writes about this child of his who um, is dying and the way that he relates to her and she reveals God in his life. And he talks about that idea of, like, we have to accept every suffering as if it comes from God, which means to have that heart that's open to be accepting of our concrete reality in our life, because it keeps us open to the transcendent. And and that's so, like, the offering to God is, like, the life I wish I had so that I can open up the life I have to receive our Lord and be transformed. Okay, so so I don't want to give the impression that, like, well, it's just kind of... Like, there's this whole transformative process that happens in that, and suffering is deeply connected with our identity as children of God right? because it only is the result of rejection of our identity as children of God and when we reaffirm our identity as children of God we don't experience it as suffering okay? because at a certain point that person who is terminally ill that starts to give joy to everybody else they're not, at su- they're not suffering in their illness they're just preparing themselves for heaven and they've accepted the fact that their life is only going to be this long. Sister? I can go with, um, in the sense that sometimes it's the way that we wanted it to be, we don't view it as a gift from God. Like, you can't really trust yourself when you think that um, this is my plan, and I made it here, and I'm moving forward. but when that suffering comes in, it's more like a relegation of God is in charge here. Right. And he's the one that's I get my i have to trust myself. Mm-hmm. Right. When everything always goes the way we think it's going to go, it beca- there's never an occasion to really freely entrust yourself to our Lord. Right? And a lot of people, like a lot of married couples suffer from this who are very faithful because their natural family planning plan was like baby two years, baby two years, baby two years, baby two years. Miscarriage comes sometime in there, it just messes up their plan and they have difficulty entrusting their life to our Lord. Because entrusting our life to our Lord means we entrust our life to our Lord first and then we see what he does with our life. It becomes a mystery and it becomes creative and it's amazing. But sometimes our order of love, when it's reversed, it becomes I need to act in a certain way so that God will bless me. It's like my sister who said, you know, I'm picking up my brother's dirty clothes off the bathroom floor so that he'll love me. And when the order of love gets like turned upside down in our heads, then we have this idea that if I do everything right, God will bless me. And that kind of removes us from that relationship of creativity and trust. Because we're not really trusting, we're trying to follow a book, a guideline, so that if we do these things, everything will be good. And the opportunity to trust really comes into our life most profoundly when things don't go the way that we think they're supposed to go. You know, when I'm not the airborne ranger, Arabic speaking army priest, and I am sitting in the family life office in the Diocese of Lincoln going, huh, this is what God wants for me. (laughs) Right? But by opening up to that, then our Lord makes it fruitful. Right, And that's the same for all of our lives. You know. And I think when I went to the seminary, I thought my life was going to be a certain way always because I'd done this. And that included, if I go to the seminary, God will fix my family. <laughs> and so I had to deal with that. And I felt like God let me down because he didn't fix my family when I went to the seminary. And it took me a while to surrender that. And to realize, wait a second, like our Lord wants to fix my family. He wants to fix my family. He's going to do it. It's going to be okay. One time when I was in adoration, when I was in therapy, Jesus just said to me really clearly Sean, don't worry. I'm going to heal everybody. Like, just worry about becoming my son. I'm going to heal everybody. You know, their healing doesn't depend on your conversion. But if you're converted, God will use you and make that conversion fruitful around you in ways that you don't expect. You know, in ways that you don't expect. It's like the act of faith is entrusting ourselves to our Lord, and it's not an easy thing to do. It's probably the hardest thing that any of us ever do. Complete surrender is the hardest thing that any of us ever do. You know, when I say like letting God love you. Letting God love you is really hard. It's not fluff. Letting God love you is really hard. Because we can be resistant about it. Okay, sorry, I get really passionate. Um, Okay, so I did review of suffering. I did Kerygma, and it's 11. So, why don't we need a break now? Do you want to do some more questions? some more questions okay we'll break okay we'll do break so we'll do break we'll come back and i need some questions prayer and resources okay all right